Remember last Shabbat? It really jumped out at me from the blessing after the Torah reading where we say, bless you for two things. Bless you for your Torah of truth, like your true teaching, i.e. the word, and bless you for like um, eternal life. And, and, and in other words, the Holy Spirit. And it's just that thing like, God is the Word and God is the Spirit. And He is one. So these two things are the same, eh? Um, um, something I read this week along those lines is like, the Gospel is history on fire. Amen. That just hit me. Because like, like Yeshua it was a historical figure. Um, the nation of Israel is part of world history. But it's not just like dry facts in a textbook or stuff that you memorize just so you can spit it out for an exam and then forget it. It's like the gospel is history on fire. And I think that's what, maybe that's what the immersion in the Holy Spirit is all about. Like, it's the Word, but it's the Word coming alive. It's the history of Yeshua and His people and Him saving humanity, but it's on fire. Like, your heart burns with it. You can't stop talking about it. Um... I, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. And uh, I'll, I'll share with you something from my, my, um, my uh, relationship with Yeshua. When I was 16 or 17, um, I was really starting to go after Him for myself. And uh, like before that, you know, I, was re- I really liked Him. And I, you know, I would like read the Word every morning some. And, um, and you know, I was involved in our, in our church life with my, my family. And it was all good. Like I really liked God. But when I hit 16 or 17, like something really hit me hard. And it was like... Boom, you know, it really kind of caught on for me. And, uh, and I was really beginning to, like, like study the Holy Spirit. Because, like, the Holy Spirit's all over the Scriptures. And I knew there was more to the Holy Spirit than what I'd ever experienced. And uh, so I just did a study on the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, began asking Yeshua for more of His Holy Spirit. And, and you know, it, it was an, uh, an unfolding experience from there. But one of the biggest things He told me when I began that journey is that he, he told me, like, remember that story from John, I think it's chapter 2, where uh, there's that wedding, and there are these six big clay pots, and they're all full of water, and they were used for ceremonial washing. And then, uh, you know the story, right? They ran out of wine. And, uh, and so Yeshua's mom was like, Yeshua, they ran out of wine. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? It's kind of cool. But then in th- the story ends with him... Them, him telling them, fill those things full of water. So they did their part, and then he turned it into wine. He did his part. And I, I felt like that's something Yeshua spoke to me very clearly. Like, the word is compared to water often throughout the scriptures. And this is something that I can do. I can get in the word on a daily basis. I can, I can study the scriptures, and, I can, and I'm like that clay water pot. So I can fill myself with the water of his word. That's something I can do on a physical level. It's just something you schedule in. It's something you do on a regular basis. But what I can't do is I can't turn that into wine. That's what he does. He comes and he goes, boom! And he sets the thing on fire. And he makes it like better than any alcohol anybody could ever experience. Like it it, it intoxicates you with his life. It overwhelms you with who he is. And you're the happiest person on the job site. Like seriously, if you've ever worked construction, some, some dudes on the construction site aren't very happy. Some of them are like, are they kind of act like life is a constant emergency. And it's just like running around barking orders and like everything's always going wrong. And, and it's like, 
But when, you, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're really different, and it really sticks out on a construction site, because you're just, like, happy, and you actually have some shalom, and, uh, and, and that's what he does. So, you know, I, I, I feel like that's an ongoing call for us as a body also. You know, we, we're going to pursue Yeshua because He is the one who immerses us in His Holy Spirit and in the fire of Elohim. So we go after Yeshua and we believe the promise and we make room for Him in our lives. Because like, it's like, I'm, a, I'm like a clay pot. Each of us is like a big clay pot. And we can fill the, our, ourselves with whatever we want, eh? We have so much time in a day. We have so many hours that we can listen to stuff on the radio or the internet or watch stuff or what I read and it's like what am I going to fill myself with if I fill myself with like with his water he's going to turn that into wine and it's going to be awesome and if I fill myself with garbage it's just going to be really disappointing and I'm going to regret it in the end so let, let's continue crown of Messiah to pursue Yeshua and to to per, to love the Holy Spirit wholeheartedly and welcome the Holy Spirit and also to fill ourselves with the water of his word because as we honor Yeshua and as we honor His Word, His Holy Spirit will back us up and He will, he will empower us because we're honoring Him. And uh, what does it say? The signs follow those who believe. So as we study His Word and believe Him, His signs will back us up. So let's, uh, this is the second last parasha in the Torah. And this is what brought me here this morning. Seriously, like I was, I was awake every half hour, every hour last night in a lot of pain. I did not want to climb out of bed this morning. I didn't want to do anything, seriously. But you know, like on Wednesday when I studied this passage, like it was like a fire in me. And I was like, I was really revved. And that's what, that's what got me here this morning. I just, I love his word. Like I just, I, every week I just love his word more. So let's, let's, let's look at that together for a bit here. Um, Wow. Okay, this is the second last parsha. It's called Ha'azinu. It's like this long song that Moses sings to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And uh, Moses says it's specifically there's a lesson in it for the Acharit Hayamim, for the end of days. Um, he says that it's for the people of Israel to teach to their kids. So it's something that's definitely for us. I'm not going to go into too much of that. I want to spend most of our time in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. But here I'm going to, sh- I'm going to point out to you one thing that really hit me this year. This is a track that I'm on. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 7, he says this. He says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your dad. They'll tell you. Your elders, they'll tell you. And uh, the word there for the days of old, it means the olam. That's the Hebrew word. It means not only history past, but history future. So like, remember your past history and also know your future history because it's in the book. This book points in both directions, forward and backwards. It's supernatural. And, uh, and so he's saying, remember and uh, again, there's that theme of history. Like, I, I love history. I'm passionate about history. For some people, they feel closest to the Father when they're doing certain things. Maybe for some people, it's when they're dancing. Or for some people, it's when they're like, uh, like just singing and playing an instrument. Or For me personally, I feel closest to Him when I'm studying like, history. I just, I love history. Like, I love early church history, the history of the early Yeshua movement. I love, I love the history of his, uh, in His Word. And uh, so, that's what he says here. Be, be strong in your history. And uh, then, then he, he gives like a very active word. He says, ask. And uh, this, is, 
this is something that really hit me when we were at Family Week in southern Saskatchewan. Like, one of the themes at Family Week was honoring our elders. And, like, we live in a society where we don't honor our elders. Um, generally, you know, they get older and they retire and we put them in a retirement home and maybe we, we visit them every now and then. But, like, we generally don't give them a lot of credence in our lives. And um, often, you know, our grandparents or, or, or our parents will die and we'll realize, you know, I never really learned much about how life was for them way back when. I never really learned what they learned in life. I've, I've, always, I've just been too busy. I've always been running around and stuff. Or when I'm with them... We always just chatter as a family and grandpa kind of gets left in the corner. That's often how it happens in our society. And that's something I've been repenting of in my life. I, I, I've really been taking this seriously. He says, like, remember your history. And this is how you're going to do it. Ask your dad. Ask the old people. Ask your, ask your grandparents. Um, I, I, I think each one of us as humans, like, I know for me personally, we have a tendency to be know-it-alls. But not in, like, kind of a cocky, arrogant way. Just like, we just, and I think it's inculcated into us in our society also. Like, you kind of have this thing, okay, so you go to high, you go to school, and you get your, uh, you graduate, and then you basically know what you need to know, know for life. And, uh, or, and maybe, you know, if you really need to specialize in something, you go to uh, college or university, and you specialize in something. And then you have your degree, and then for sure you know what you need to know for life. Um, and, you know, if, if you grew up in the church, then often, like, by the time we're in our mid-teens, we're bored because we feel like we've heard it all and we feel like there's nothing more to learn. Honestly, as a pastor's kid growing up, that's how I felt. By the age of 15 or 16, I was just bored. I felt like I'd heard it all. There's nothing new in a sermon. It was just the same stuff hashed over and over again. But you know what's really sad? I never heard about the kingdom of God growing up. Um, I, I didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. I certainly didn't hear about the relevancy of the ways of God as communicated in the Old Testament. I didn't, hear, I didn't hear about the Torah. I, did, I knew nothing about a Jewish Jesus. I, did, I had no clue how Israel fit into the whole thing, whether it be in the past or in the future. Like, and so I grew up in this evangelical church setting where I heard the same stuff over and over, but it was only a limited little bit of stuff. And I was getting really bored. And when I discovered that Jesus was Jewish, when I discovered that he practiced stuff from the Torah... And, as, and he modeled that as a lifestyle for me. When I discovered reading the Bible in Hebrew, like, it was like fire on gas for me. Like, it just, it set me ablaze. And I actually, like, got excited about faith in him. You know? And, and it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. It just keeps getting better. So, um, what's, uh, and, and, you know, like, I, I can think of other areas where that comes up. They're kind of like, I kind of like, basically, I know everything I need to know already. What do we do in our spare time? You, you can tell. You can probably. You can tell more about someone by what they do in their spare time than probably anything else. Because when you have free time, that's when your heart really comes out. Are you a narcissist? Like, do you just love yourself? Are you Are you a hedonist? Do you just live for your own pleasure and do whatever feels best? If you are, then what you do in your spare time, that's when it's going to show. It's going because you're going to do what you want to do and it makes you feel good and it'll all be about you, right? That's the idea. And like, I, I challenge you in this upcoming week, look at what you do in your spare time and be like, Who's my re- who, who really is my God? Who do I really love the most? Man, that's something that's been hitting me this year too. Um, for a lot of us, when we have spare time, we just will like sleep more than we have to or eat more than we have to or watch a movie or turn on the TV or... Like uh, it, it, it's often a lot of like physical pleasure or entertainment. 
That's, that's like kind of what our Western world revolves around. And those are false gods. And like it's really offensive to the Creator, hey? And Yeshua came to save us from that stuff and to give us like a real mission in life, to give us something to live for, to give us a passion to like to be there for the people around us and to be there for our city and our, our cities and society. And um, I, I, so I challenge you, what do you do in your spare time? That's going to that's gonna, that's gonna be what you... And you know what? If we like just kind of chill out and just like indulge in physical pleasures and entertainment, what, it's say, what, what, what we're saying when we do that is, I know everything I need to know in life. Basically, I've arrived. You know, I have nothing more to learn. I don't want to learn anything more. That's what it communicates. And often that's, that comes from a heart of pride. And we're on, the, we're on the shirt tails of Yom Kippur, right? So I'm kind of hitting stuff hard here. But this is stuff that, that Yeshua's been hitting me hard with in the last couple of years. And so, so Moses like challenges us in this parsha, don't do that. Like, get an attitude where you want to learn your history. Where you want to know where you came from. Why stuff happens the way it does. And not just in the past. Know what's going to happen in the future. Like, get clear. On some of these things, it's kind of um. So here, here I'll give you an example from my family. Like we're really tight as a family, and my grandparents are in their mid eighties, and they're really, they're I, I really love them. Uh, but my, like my grandpa's pretty hard of hearing, and so it's really it's really easy for us when we get together as a family to just kind of chatter away, and for me to just like talk with my bros about the stuff that's on our minds. And my grandpa, he can't even understand most of what we're saying because he's hard of hearing. So we have to talk really slowly and clearly. And only one person can talk at a time if, if we want him to understand. And so I, I, I found that we have a proclivity in my family to just get together and talk away. And I, I just kind of leave my grandparents on the side. And I mean, you know, we're spending time together. We like them. And, and like, it's great. But I'm realizing I'm not going to have them forever. And they've like been married for 65 years or something. They have a beautiful marriage. And, like, my grandpa grew up, like, in the Depression. And he never went into debt as a farmer. Like, he did a lot of things right. And I'm realizing, like, when I get together and I just shoot my mouth off, I'm just being arrogant. I should just shut up and I should ask my grandpa stuff about what was life like for him? What has he learned over time? And, and so I, that's the lesson I'm learning. Like, one of the big things that hit me at Family Week was, your elders won't come to you. Don't expect your elders to come to you and don't expect your elders to initiate a learning session with you because they won't do it because they're humble and um, because you probably wouldn't receive it very well anyway. Um, we all have elders. We all have people that are older than us. We all have people who know more in some area than we do. So, you know, um, when it comes to Hebrew study, I'm probably, I'm probably your elder for most of you. I'm like an old person when it comes to Hebrew study. When it comes to how to treat a spouse in a marriage, many of you are my elder, like by far. Um, like every one of us, we have elders in our lives in different areas. And I, I encourage you, just based on this parsha, humble yourself and just go to your, ask like, who's my elder in this area? Every, like, and just say, what can I learn? And just go ask, start asking. And that's been huge for me. Like Genevieve and I, um, for our, for our four-year anniversary, we, we, we did lunch with my grandparents, and we just asked them questions about their marriage. You know, how do they feel on their wedding day? Uh, what have they learned about treating each other and stuff? And it was so rich. It was so rich. And uh, I just feel like that's something I'm discovering right now. Like, run to my elders, be the one to initiate conversations, ask them stuff, and they just shut up and listen. 
I know. Have you noticed? Often in conversation, you can tell if someone's really listening to you or if they're just, if their mind is turning about what they're going to say next. And I, I'm so guilty of this. Like, I'll interrupt people and say what I have to say. Halfway through a sentence or a question of theirs, it's, it's, I'm an idiot sometimes with that. And then I'm like, no, no, I can't believe I did that. That was so stupid. But, you know, it's, it's a process that I'm going through. I'm learning, right? I'm growing up in some areas. But, um, but like, uh, that happens in conversation, hey? Where, like, instead of being there to listen and to ask the questions, I'm just there to display what I know and to display, like, and, and to get my piece in, you know? And I, 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 that, that's another one Yeshua is working on. On me, you know, it's Yom Kippur, right? It's a time when we've been soul searching, and this is stuff that's hitting me. So um, I want to grow in these areas in, in the next year uh, by God's grace. So that, that's something from this parsha that really that really hit me. Um, before we look at these chapters in Revelation, I, just, I, I want to just um, recap a couple things from last week. Um, I, I I hit some stuff really hard. We talked about quote mystery Babylon. We talked about historically what the early Protestant leaders, the reformers, um, understood Mystery Babylon to be. There was a, most of them understood that to be the Roman Catholic Church. They understood the woman that sits on seven hills to be Rome. We, we talked about that last week. Um, you know, and, I, and we discussed different ways that the Holy Spirit is still calling us to come out of her, my people, on a practical level. And um, you're still here. So I'm kind of encouraged by that. I was like, that because that was that was a bit of a bombshell, you know. And I mean, we're all still in process, of course. So I just I just want to study history. Our history is the people of God, is the body of Messiah. I want to read the Bible. I want to believe all of it. And um, and so you know, I'm, and that's just that's my objective in looking at some of that stuff. But just to recap that idea, I want to point out two, three things just to make it really clear in our mind. Um, if we focus on what we're not, and we focus on what we're walking away from. We will never change, and we will never go anywhere. We'll just become really paranoid and, like, weird. So, remember this. There is no mystery Babylon in Yeshua. And when we live by His Holy Spirit, and we apply the Word of God by His Holy Spirit, we will be coming out of her. We will be walking away from her, because we'll be living in Yeshua. So that's our objective as a community, to do the Word as the Holy Spirit inspires us, and to be in Yeshua, to dwell deep in Yeshua. That's our objective. And you know what? In the process, as the body Messiah does that, we are going to walk away from every system that's pictured by Egypt or by Babylon or any of those, um, those political or religious systems in the Bible. Um, yeah, like, okay, the, I, I want to clarify this too. Like, okay, so the early reformers believed that the Roman church was mystery Babylon, and they felt that there was a prophetic call to come out of her, and um, I, I, I would agree with that. At the same time, I think it's bigger than that. I think Mystery Babylon is just dead religion. It doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Protestant or even hyper-charismatic. It's possible to just have dead religion, and that's Babylon, because it's just, it's just a dead thing. It, the Holy Spirit isn't in it. And so... And you know what? That can be messianic too. I believe that can be that can be messianic too. And um, so that's something Yeshua is calling us out of. Right? Yeah, having a form of godliness and no power. Yeah. And so you know that's a bigger picture. It's not just about like because I know people and they're like, yeah, we've left the quote left the church. And so they're 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 but and they're obsessed about not being like certain systems or not looking like this or not using certain terms or whatever 
but they're not so clear about where they're going or who they want to be or how they're going to make disciples for Yeshua in their city. They just, when it comes to the positive end of accomplishing the mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples, all that, it's just, it doesn't get much airtime. So, you know, we, we never want to be paganoid and we never want to be churchophobic. Right? So, just wanted to clarify on that. Um, let's look at Revelation chapter 19. I just want to give, do an overview of 19 and 20 here. This is exciting. This is like the grand finale of history, of like the whole scriptures. Like this, this passage is like the climax of the last two years as we've been reading through the Word as a congregation. Like last year, we went through the Gospels and Acts. This year, we're going through the remainder of the writings of Yeshua's apostles. And this is it. This is where, like, the king comes back. And um, the final battle is executed. And and everything's going to be okay. So let's look at that together. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, so, like, Babylon falls. It's taken out of the picture. And, like... Everybody in heaven is celebrating. And they say, uh, actually they say, they say a Hebrew word. This is cool. Hallelujah. Actually that's two Hebrew words. Hallelujah. Praise. And Yah is the short form for the name of God. So we learn two things from this. Number one, that they use Hebrew in heaven, or at least one word, and they use God's name in heaven. You'll notice it says Yah. That's short for Yahweh. So in heaven, the worship of heaven involves the use of the holy name of God. And if we want to see our worship here on earth reflect the worship in heaven, I believe that that will, be, that will involve the use of the holy name of God, which is Yahweh. Yah is the short form, right? So that's, uh, that's something that, we, that we're growing in our appreciation for. Um, in chapter 19, verse 4, they use another Hebrew word that we take for granted. It says, The 24 elders, the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshipped Elohim who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Amen is a Hebrew word also. You're probably aware of that. But it's like, it's probably the, Hallelujah and Amen are probably the two most well-known Hebrew words in the world. Uh, it's, it's just cool that believers worldwide do use a couple Hebrew words. And actually like Amen is a liturgical Jewish term that's used in the synagogue. So, I like that. But here's, here's, here's something on a practical level. Um, I think that's my favorite prayer right there. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a short passage from Jeremiah chapter 11, where, uh, where he, he, it's probably like the shortest prayer in the Bible, or one of the shortest prayers. I really like this, uh, Jeremiah chapter 11. Okay, um, so I'll just read you like the first um, five verses. Jeremiah 11 verse 1, this is what it says. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who doesn't listen to the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Shema, listen to my voice, and do according to all which I command you, so you'll be my people and I'll be your God, in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. So that's what... The Almighty says. And then this is, this is how Jeremiah responds. This is his prayer. Then I said, Amen, Yahweh. <laughs> That's right. And, and, then, and then it goes on to say, And Yahweh said to me, and then, and then the Almighty says some more to him. But I just love that. It's like, it's like when Yahweh speaks to you, sometimes the best response is just to say, 
Amen, Yahweh. Like, so be it. I so agree. Yes. Yes. So, I love that. Apparently, they do that in heaven too. There are times when a massive event will happen. It will be an act of God. Or when there will be worship that breaks out and like a new song is sung. And everybody just falls on their faces and they just say, Amen. Sometimes that's the best response in worship you can have. Just to say, Amen. So, I, I like that. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, um, Paul says that's often the best response to a promise to you. When you hear a promise from the Holy One, he says, as many as are the promises of Elohim in Him, in Yeshua, they're yes. Therefore, also through Him, through Yeshua, is our Amen to the glory of God through us. So like when you hear a truth from the Word, when you hear a promise from Him, Yeshua through you just says yes to that. He says, Amen. And you know what he says? He says, that glorifies God. I like that. I like how simple it is sometimes to bring glory to God. Like when we repent, we walk away from idols and junk, and we turn to Him. It says that glorifies Him. When we just say Amen, when He says something, that glorifies Him. So you know, glorifying Him is really practical. It isn't necessarily some hyper-spiritual thing. It's just like, yes, saying yes to Him. Um, in Revelation chapter 19... Verse 7, uh, we have the greatest Jewish wedding in the history of the world. <laughs> it's going to be a Jewish wedding. Um, when you look at how Yeshua came to his people and brought them into covenant with himself, when you look at how he said things like, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and he offered his disciples the cup, and he said, the, This is the cup of the covenant. These are all things that happen in the context of a Jewish betrothal and a Jewish wedding. So when Yeshua comes back, it's going to be the biggest Jewish wedding ever. And it's going to be, of course, between Him and the whole body uh, of Messiah. And, um, yeah. So you you think think about this for a sec. Like, um, marriage. And the stuff that precedes marriage. Like, uh, courtship. Uh, betrothal, that, that season of betrothal, and then the actual wedding ceremony and married life after that, all of that is designed only for a person's personal pleasure. Not. Not. It, it says, Paul says, the relationship between husband and wife is designed to reflect Yeshua. Marriage is created to glorify God. I mean, there's a lot of joy in the process. There's a lot of laughing and fun and pleasure and all this stuff. But marriage is created to glorify God. And that means, like, the stuff before that is created to glorify Him also. So, like, um, when, when, when a young couple, like, lay eyes on each other and they're like, I want to get to know that person better. And, and they go through the process of falling in love and, you know, the courtship thing and getting engaged or betrothed. That whole process is designed to glorify God. It glorifies Him. Because it's a reflection of our relationship with Yeshua. And um, that's God's image. Like marriage and the stuff preceding marriage is the image of God. And have you noticed that Satan hates God and Satan hates God's image? And Satan will do everything he can to mar it. It's like, if you could imagine bearing a face. Like, uh, let's say his face. You know, your face is kind of what you look like, right? Um, if you could imagine like um, someone's face, and if you, like uh, let's uh, let's say a piece of art, let's say a piece of art. Um, there's a, a piece of art that is a picture of someone's face, of who they are. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of Yeshua's face, and Satan hates Yeshua's guts, 
And so he will do everything he can to take a razor to that picture and slice it and dice it and smear garbage and crap and paint all over it. That's Satan's job. And I think maybe that's why marriage and like the whole courtship process is so under fire today in the Western world and in the church. Like seriously, the way we do stuff in the Western world and in most of the Christian community it's not a very good reflection of Yeshua and his relationship with us. Like casual dating, for instance, casual dating is Satan's way of slicing and dicing the picture of Yeshua's face, of spreading crap all over it. Because what often happens in casual dating is two people go out, but they're not doing it involving like their parents and their parents' authority. They're not doing it in the context of a committed relationship. It's just about me and my pleasure and about my good feelings. And that's like marring the image of God. Um, often the way we do engagement in the Western world is marring the image of God. Like when we have an engagement where it's just a guy pops the question, gives the girl a ring, she says yes, and then maybe she'll break it off or maybe he'll break it off. You know, I, like I, I, you know it, works, it works generally in the Western world, but at the same time, that's actually not the scriptural model. And sometimes I fear that maybe that is not fully reflecting our Messiah's image in the relationship we have with him. Uh, that's why there's a movement today in the Christian community and in the messianic world towards like learning about courtship, which is closer to the biblical model and glorifies Yeshua, and uh, learning about like betrothal, because betrothal is different than engagement. It is more commitment, and it more accurately reflects the relationship we have with Yeshua. So, you know, like, I, I have friends who date. I have friends who get engaged in stuff. And, and, and it's beautiful because their hearts are in the right place and they do it prayerfully. So, you know, I, I'm not criticizing or, or judging the way people go about that. Because, um, you know, I think it, the most important thing is our heart and going about things humbly and in a prayerful spirit. But at the same time, I think when I look at how often how things are done in the Western world and, and often, like, in the body of Christ, I think there's a better way. It's not that one is bad and one is good, but I think there's a better way. And I, I think often w- w- that's something we've missed out on. So, like, I, I'm hardcore. I, I, I never dated a girl before Genevieve. And I was like, how old were we when... I was like 25 when I met you, right, Genevieve? And it wasn't because I didn't have girls crushing on me before that or that I wanted to go out. I did. But I was like, I had committed in my heart to only go out with the girl that the father indicated to me was the one that he wanted me to pursue a relationship with. And yeah, I liked girls before that. I was attracted to girls before that. But like, I knew in my heart when I would ask Abba that he didn't want me to pursue a relationship with whoever. This girl and that girl and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I just stayed stinkle. So like, I never held hands with a girl until I held hands with Genevieve. I never kissed a girl except for my Bob and my mom until I kissed Genevieve. And, and um, was there, what's her name? Um, Miss Helen, I think. You remember the kid show? Kind of like size smaller doctor, like um, Mr. Dressup or whatever. Anyway, I think her name was Miss Helen. She was one of those kids' figures. But she was at like the Centennial Auditorium in Saskatoon. I guess when I was a little boy, I kissed her on the cheek, actually. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying like, you know what? The world will say, that's stupid. You need to like date a bunch of people so you can figure out what you really want. And you need to sleep around so that you can figure out who's really good and bad. And the world will say that kind of stuff. And it's a lie. And it's satanic because it's designed to like... 
to deface God's image and to do the opposite of glorifying Him. And there's a better way. And there are people, there's a younger generation that includes me and includes a lot of young people I know in our province. And we're saying that's dumb and that's satanic and it's not what we were created for and we're going to do this the right way. And you know what? It's possible. So like I, I, I stand before you as, a, as living proof that it is possible. And you know what? It did mean like sometimes saying no to what I wanted. It did mean like being really humble. It did mean sometimes not fitting in because my friends were going out and I wasn't. But I'm happier than they are today. And I have a better relationship with my wife than they have because I did it, I did it his way. And like, yeah. So anyway, um, that's something we see in this whole, this whole passage is like the finale of history is a, is a wedding. And there was a courtship process and a betrothal that preceded it. And actually it fit the classic Jewish template which is cool. Um, there are a couple things in here. I like this. Like, in every culture, you will see remnants of godliness. You will see some reflection of the, the culture of heaven. Maybe, maybe it'll be kind of twisted up, or maybe it'll be kind of like a, a little bit tarnished or whatever, but it's there. And um, it's, that's definitely true, let's say, in the Christian world. In the Christian world, that's even more true. But here, here's a couple cool examples of this. Um, in Revelation 19.8, it says the bride is wearing linen. Do you know what color linen is? White. So the bride is wearing white. So, you know, even in the Western world, the bride wearing white, that's so biblical. That's such a picture of Yeshua coming back for his bride. And that's cool. You know what, you know what the other cool thing is? Um, do you know what linen is made from? What kind of plant? Flax. Flax. Do you know what the pages of most Bibles are made of? Flax. There's a, could there be a connection? I don't know if that's... Maybe it wasn't the original intent because they had scrolls back then. But I just think it's cool that wedding dresses are made from flax and your Bible is made from flax. Could it be that the bride preparing herself and money? Okay, and money is made from flax. Okay, so flax doesn't rot. It lasts a long time. That's why they make money out of it too. That's cool. Maybe, maybe there's a correlation. Maybe you could say that like his word and preparing for Yeshua's return as the bride... That's our highest investment. That's the most valuable thing to us. What do you think? That's my cash. That's my cash. Um, I like that. Okay, here's, here's, a, here's another cool one. Um, frankly, my favorite, I, one of my favorite parts of most wedding ceremonies is the big meal afterwards, because I love eating. So I love wedding receptions. And uh, we see here that there's a big wedding reception. There's a massive feast. And only the people who are invited get to come. So you can see that in the Western model of, of, of weddings too here, hey? Um, actually, there's a, there's a snapshot of the wedding feast of the Lamb in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter, um, chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. I want to read that with you guys. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. It says, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. That's a reference to Mount Zion, which is like geographically where Jerusalem is. A banquet of, excuse me, aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And, and the Master Yahweh will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. So did you get that? The wedding's going to be in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. He's going to remove death permanently, and uh, the experience that we're going to have is going to be similar to 
enjoying a really fine cup of really expensive wine. Wow. So that's, that's like a description in the prophet Isaiah of the wedding, the wedding um, feast of the Lamb. In uh, Revelation 19.10, um, Yohanan, John, he falls down at the feet of this angel, it says, to worship him. And uh, notice, notice the, his response. He says, don't do that. He's like, stop right there. Don't do that. And um, here's, here's something notable. The angel refused John's worship. In Acts chapter 10, verse 25, Cornelius, when, when Simon Peter comes to Cornelius' house, says Cornelius falls down to worship Simon Peter too. Simon Peter's like, stand up. I'm just a man. I'm just a guy like you. You know, don't worship me, seriously. Okay, so we have two instances of like people falling down before angels or human beings and them immediately being like, don't do that, don't do that, stop. And, uh, but here's something notable. In the book of Matthew, people fall down and worship Yeshua several times and Yeshua never stops them. That's very significant. In the, the Magi, in Matthew chapter 2, they fall down and they worship baby Yeshua. Um, the disciples in the boat in Matthew chapter 14, they fall down and they worship him as the Son of God. Because he has control over storms, which is pretty impressive, especially if you're a fisherman, because you've seen some serious storms. Um, and then finally, in Matthew chapter 28, when Yeshua rendezvous with his disciples, it says they, they worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him. So note that. Some people would say, well, you know, they were just, that was just a sign of respect in Middle Eastern culture. They weren't literally worshipping him. Yes, they were. The Greek word there for worshipping him is they were worshipping him. Like, you would, like where it says, worship... Um, remember when Yeshua quoted the Torah to Satan? And he said it's written, worship Yahweh your God only? It's the same word. Um, and, you know, again, it's very clear here. Um, Cornelius and this angel. They're, you know, in both cases they were like, don't do that to me. So, Yeshua is worthy of our worship. We worship the Father and Yeshua brings us to the Father. But at the same time, Yeshua is also worthy of our worship. That's very clear throughout Scripture. I worship Yeshua. Um, And then he goes on to say in Revelation 19.10, the hallmark of the prophetic spirit is the testimony of Yeshua. So like when when you're full of the Spirit, and when you're speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guess who you're going to be talking about? Yeshua is going to be like the centerpiece of your conversation. He's going to be the guy you can't stop talking about. And did you notice that doesn't just happen? We don't just work that up on our own. We don't cook that up. He says this is a product of what happens when you're full of the spirit of prophecy. So, you know, this is something we've been discussing ongoingly. Paul said, you should really want the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but especially to prophesy. You know, when I read this, it just makes me want it all the more. Like, I want to be so full of the gift of prophecy. Because I'll be talking about Yeshua and exalting Him. I want to pray about that right now. Uh, Father, thank You. Thank You so much for speaking to us here through Your Word. Um, Thank You for Yeshua and that He is worthy, Father. Thank You for showing us that He's worthy. And um, Father, thank You that You are in the process of of filling us with Your Holy Spirit and immersing us. And Father, You've spoken to us through the Apostle Paul specifically and said we should really want the gift of prophecy. And, and Abba, Father, we really do. We really want the gift of prophecy. And we ask you this morning, please, Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the gift of prophecy as a congregation so that we can exalt Yeshua all the time, so that we can't stop talking about him and lifting up his name. Thank you, Father. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. 
We welcome the gift of prophecy in our midst. Thank you, Yeshua. Yeah. Um, so this gets really dramatic, Revelation 19, verse 11. Yeshua comes back as a warrior. Uh, he's riding a war steed. He's wielding a sword. He's leading an army. He crushes his opposition. He delivers their leaders over to torture. And he kills everybody else who opposes him. That's the finale of history. He's not very tame when he comes back. He's really gentle with his people, but if anybody chooses like, to not submit to his kingdom willingly, they die. And their leaders get handed over to torture. It's hard to think of Yeshua that way, but think about that. Yeshua hands the people who lead the nations in rebellion against him over to torture forever. And they deserve it too. Um, that's Yeshua. Like He comes back as a very tough dude, a very dangerous individual, as someone that you do not want to mess with. And here's something cool. Um, it says, Revelation 19, 12, there's a name written on him that nobody knows. So, you know, like I really love the Hebrew names and titles of God and Messiah, but just think about this. There's one that you don't know about yet. There's one that you don't know about yet. Um, in 19 verse 13, it does go on to say that this is his name, the Word of God. In Hebrew, that's the Devar Elohim. Um, is God's Word his Torah? Yeah. Is God's Torah his Word? Yes. You can't separate the two. Torah just means teaching, right? So think about this for a second. Yeshua's title is the Word of God, God's Torah. So like, if people tell you the Torah's done away with, it's like you're saying Yeshua's done away with because he is the word of God in its totality. So I love that. The Torah of God is coming back in the person of Yeshua and he's going to be someone that you don't want to mess with. Um, that's another reason why I'm really passionate about like, getting into the Bible, studying the Bible, preaching the Bible. Why I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, almost compulsively passionate about theology is because that's, that's what Yeshua is about. Like, He is the Word. That's who He is. Wow. Yeah. It says that He comes back um, wielding a rod of iron. The Hebrew term there is a Shevet Barzel. And that, like, means He's coming back, like, tough, authoritarian, utterly intolerant of anything that would oppose His rule. It goes on to say, um, and John mentioned this, this morning as we were praying, He's the King of Kings. He's the Melech Hamlachim. And in Hebrew, if you say that something is like, okay, another example would be the Song of Songs, that means it's the ultimate. So like the Song of Songs, that means it's the ultimate song. It's the greatest song ever. Like, number one on the charts for all eternity is the idea. So for it to say that Yeshua is the King of Kings means He's the ultimate King. Uh, there, was, there is one other guy in Scripture that's called the King of Kings. Um, in the book of Jeremiah, the King of Babylon is called the King of Kings. Now, was he the ultimate king? No. But it was that idea. Like, this guy's the king over everybody else. And uh, Yeshua, of course, is the real ultimate king. Um. <laughs> so, like, the beast and the false prophet, they're all, like, assembling their global army to resist the return of Mashiach, which just seems totally insane. But they do it. And um, I guess that's what deception does to you. And I love this. It doesn't say there's a battle. It just says they were seized. In um, verse, uh, verse 20, 
the beast was seized and with him the false prophet and uh, they throw them into the, the lake of fire and then everyone else was killed by the sword that comes from Yeshua's mouth. End of story. I just, I love that. Like there's, there's no battle. <laughs> and uh, it, it reminds me of a passage. I really like this passage. It's in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 18. Um, there's, some, there's some humor here. In 1 Kings chapter 20, like Israel has dwindled to almost non-existence. They're a very small kingdom politically. In Ben-Hadad, he forms this alliance with 32 other kings. So the king of Aram and all these other kings form an alliance and they're going to come through and just wipe out Israel. And so they, they come and they put Samaria under siege and um, Ahab sends out this puny little army. There's almost nobody in the army. And um, it's... Uh, and, and, um, this is what Ben-Hadad says. They say, Ben-Hadad, there's some people coming out of Samaria um, to fight. And he says, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. And they were all drinking, right? So at that point, I'm sure they all started like roaring with laughter. Because you don't just... Okay, if someone surrenders, you take them alive, right? But if an army comes out for war, you don't take them alive. You have to kill them. So it's kind of, it's kind of humorous, right? If they come out to fight us, take them alive anyway. But um, that's the kind of resistance that these guys put up against Yeshua. It's just negligible. Yeshua takes them alive without a fight. <clears throat> yeah. Um, let's look at Revelation chapter 20 also. <clears throat> it says in Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 that Satan is bound for a thousand years and he won't deceive until the thousand years are completed. <clears throat> it... Um, also says in Revelation 20 verse 4 that the resurrection happens at Yeshua's return at the beginning of that thousand year block of time. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, Paul describes that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, I'm not, I, I, you've, you've heard that passage. If you've ever been to a funeral then you've heard that passage. Um, you know, the one where it says, and it's very comforting, it says the Master Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Uh, the dead in Messiah will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Master in the air. So we'll always be with Him. So this is the picture. Yeshua comes, His people who lived in times past shoot up out of the graves and we all go up to meet the Master in the air. It's, 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 it's pretty simple, it's very dynamic, um, but take note of that. In chapter 20, verse 5, it says that this event is called the first resurrection. The first resurrection. Um, I've heard some people call that the resurrection of the righteous, and I wasn't sure if that was a biblical term, so I looked it up, and it actually is. Uh, Yeshua, in Revelation chapter... No, in Luke chapter 14, verse 14, he actually he, he makes reference to the resurrection of the righteous. All right? So we could say this is the resurrection of the righteous when Yeshua comes back at the beginning of the thousand year block of time. Now take note of something here. In chapter 20 verse 4, when it says as Yeshua comes back and all of his people are raised from the dead at the beginning of the thousand years, some of the people that it says are raised from the dead are those who went through the great tribulation and didn't worship the beast and refused the mark. It says they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. So, you know, that, that, could, that could give the picture of Yeshua coming at the end of the Great Tribulation and raising all of His people at the end of the Great Tribulation because, because some of the people who are raised are the people who went through the Great Tribulation. So, that, you know, be, that, that would be another passage that would suggest to me that the people of God will go through the Great Tribulation, the resurrection will occur after that, 
and we're all going to go up to meet him in the air. I guess we'll have to wait and see and just uh, be ready every day. Stay alert. Yeah. But um, note too here, this is a physical resurrection. Um, honestly, this is something that never really occurred to me when I was growing up, like as a church kid. I, just, I, I didn't hear a lot of talk about like, a physical resurrection. Like, often the gospel that's communicated will be, pray the sinner's prayer, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Those are, those are often the two elements. And then, you know, in the interim, you'll want to go to church, read the Bible, pray, and, and grow spiritually. And that's good. I mean, that's a good place to start. It is true. If you, if you pray as a sinner and cry out to him, then you do receive eternal life, and you do go to heaven when you die. But I think we're missing at least half the gospel when that's, that's the gospel, that, and that's the sum total of it the early believers stood for physical resurrection. So it's not just pray the sinner's prayer and you go to heaven and you die. It's pray the sinner's prayer and when Yeshua comes back, He will raise your body from the dead and you will enjoy life with Him for a thousand years on planet Earth. And then you're going to go into eternity and it's going to be even better. And you won't be one of the dead who are raised and then judged by God and sent into the lake of fire. So, you know, that's really good news. It's really good news. He, he isn't just here to save your spirit. He's not just here to save your soul and whisk you away to heaven when you die. He is coming back to save your body. The power of God is sufficient not just to save our souls, it's sufficient to save our flesh too. And uh, that's, uh, that's something that was very vital to the early believers because a lot of these people were being tortured to death. They were being torn apart by lions. They were being boiled to death. Like their bodies were just frying and getting crunched and everything. And they had a hope that Yeshua was coming back and their bodies were going to be restored. And that they were going to enjoy life with the Master on this earth in their bodies. Um, I, I really enjoy reading some of the early, uh, like the church fathers. Um, one of them I'm reading right now is Justin Martyr. And one of the things uh, that he was really fighting was this idea that people's physical bodies weren't going to be resurrected. It was a heresy that was coming into the early Yeshua movement. And he, just, he, he takes several chapters to say, Yeshua is coming back and he's going to resurrect our physical bodies and the power of God is not just for your soul, it is for your mortal flesh also. I don't know, for me personally, it all of a sudden just becomes like, it, be, it feels solid. It feels grounded in planet Earth. It feels historical. And it feels like something I can talk about to people that's like, will mean something to them. So, take note of that. It's part of the gospel. Um, you, you'll notice that this thousand year block of time was thrown around several times. It says, Satan's bound for that amount of time. It says, Yeshua and his people rule on, on the earth for that amount of time. Um, there's, a couple, there's a question about that. There's always been. Is that a literal thousand year block of time or is that figurative? Um, the early believers, the majority of the early Christians believe that that was a literal thousand year block of time. Uh, I'll, I'll list a couple of them for you. Um, the guys who, who believed there would be a literal thousand year block of time on planet earth after Yeshua came back included Barnabas, uh, Papias, Justin Martyr, uh, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Commodian, Lactantius, Methodius, and Apoll- Apollinaris of Laodicea. So okay, most of those names probably don't mean anything to you, but I have like a, a, vol- a ten volume set of the early church fathers. All of the writings of the early Christians and all of those guys are in there. In fact, I think you could say they take up the majority of those writings. So there was, the majority of early believers believed in a thousand year kingdom of God on planet Earth. Uh, the first guy to really say, no, that's, that's an allegory or that isn't literal was a heretic named Marcion in the 100s. I, I'm sure you've heard of him. He was one bad dude. We talked about him last Shabbat. In, um, in, in the Talmud, 
and Sanhedrin 97a, this is what it says. And we don't base our doctrine on the Talmud, okay? The Talmud is this huge bunch of books written in the first couple of centuries after the Temple was destroyed. It gives us some good history. It helps us understand how the Jewish people thought. Okay, so I'm not quoting this as doctrine, okay? I want to put in a disclaimer, but this is what it says. It's been taught in accordance with Rabbi Katina. Just as the seventh year is one year of release in seven, so you know what farmers would let the land lie fallow every seventh year? So is the world. One, one thousand years out of seven shall be fallow, as it is written, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And it is further said, a psalm and song for the Sabbath day, meaning the day that is altogether Sabbath. And it is also said, here's what you just quoted, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. So the, the Jewish people read that and they said, okay, this is a principle. A day is like a thousand years, prophetically speaking. So the week is a template, the creation week is a template for world history. Um, every seven years when the farmers in Israel let their land lie fallow, that's a template for world history. And, uh, and it just, it's like this, this multiple layer of seven. Here's one more traditional Jewish source. It says, the Tanah of Elijah teaches, the world is to exist 6,000... This is what Jewish people in Yeshua's time believed, okay? Get this. The world is to exist for 6,000 years. In the first 2,000, there was desolation. Then for 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. But through our many iniquities, all these years have been lost. Okay? Did you get that? Jewish people, in the couple of centuries after Yeshua said, Okay, the first 2,000 years were like kind of lawlessness. Then God gave the Torah, and it was the era of His Torah. At the end of 4,000 years, the Messiah was supposed to come. We were supposed to enter into the Messianic era. But because of our iniquities, He never showed up. Guess what? At the end of 4,000 years, Yeshua did show up. And many Jewish people did believe in Him. But because of the iniquity of some Jewish people in their hard hearts, they didn't accept Him. So that's... You know what? Just think about that. Orthodox Judaism teaches, yeah, Messiah was actually supposed to show up 2,000 years ago, and He just never showed up. Maybe He did show up. Maybe we need to like go back and re-examine Yeshua's messianic claims. Well, that's huge. The technical term for someone who believes in a millennium, a millennial kingdom on the earth, is a chiliest. Okay, so I'm a chiliest. I'm a chiliest. That's like the, that's the technical term. Um, Marcion opposed like chiliasm, and then also Oregon and uh, and uh, Constantine's new the brainchild of Constantine's new state religion uh, Eusebius he he really didn't like the idea of a thousand year kingdom of God on planet earth I think because they were busy establishing the kingdom of God through the Roman church and that just kind of didn't work for him um, Eusebius actually really didn't like the book of Revelation also because it says very clearly that Yeshua is going to come back and there will be a thousand year kingdom on planet earth um there's, I, I could read to you some other quotes from early church fathers and early believers. I won't get into that. Um, Papias has a really great uh, has some material about that. The Epistle of Barnabas has some great material about that. Here's here's a question, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this one. I'll throw it out there, and we can talk about it later. What's that going to look like? That thousand year period of time when Yeshua comes back. Did you notice the Book of Revelation doesn't say anything about what it's going to look like? It just says Yeshua is going to come back, and his people are going to rule with him, and Satan's going to be bound. Well, actually, the reason it doesn't really go into that is because almost every one of the prophets of Israel describe in detail what that period of time is going to look like. Uh, The last chapter of Isaiah, actually the last two chapters of Isaiah, the last chapter of Zechariah, and the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, all go into detail. And you know what? It's going to surprise a lot of people. Because it says we're all going to be doing Shabbat. 
we're all going to be doing Rosh Chodesh, like the monthly new moon, which means we're going to be on the calendar of Israel. Um, the nations are going to be celebrating Sukkot. And if they dig in their heels and they don't want to, they get national drought. I mean, and then Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 gets even better. It talks about Passover. It even talks about a temple. It talks about the tribes of Israel reinstated in the land of Israel. And I mean, I'm sure you just can't read this stuff allegorically. It's too literal. It gives architectural dimensions for a temple. Um, you can't say that happened a long time ago because it never happened. There was never a temple built like that. It's just, you know, so I encourage you, read those chapters. It's a really good look at heaven when heaven comes to earth. And uh, that is our hope as believers. That is, that is our heritage. The last thing that happens after that is it says Satan is released. He deceives the nations of the earth. So I guess everybody isn't in their immortal state or something because people can still sin. People can still be deceived. They go up. It says... Um, in um, Revelation chapter 20, verse, verse um, 9, it says they get, he gathers Gog and Magog. Those guys are listed in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. It's, it's described in detail. It says um, they came up on the broad plain of the earth. Everybody say the earth. Did you notice that this is happening on the earth? I had, a, I had a conversation with a Seventh-day Adventist pastor recently who thinks that when Yeshua comes back, we're all going to be in heaven for the thousand years. And I said, what about this? It says they come up on the broad plane of the earth. And he didn't want to read that literally because people don't want to read the Bible literally sometimes. But anyway, and it says they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What, beloved, what city is that? New York. Salt Lake City. No, it's Jerusalem. Did you notice that? Jerusalem wasn't just an important city to God in the past. Jerusalem in the future will be the beloved city. God loves Jerusalem. And God is going to love Jerusalem. And when we reflect His heart, maybe we'll be passionate about Jerusalem too. I believe we will be. Um, After that, everybody else who lived is raised from the dead. Like all the wicked people basically. All the books are opened. Everything they did is written down. And they all get a sen- they're all sentenced basically to be thrown in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And, uh, and then after that we go into the next cap- couple chapters. And, maybe, and we'll look at that next week. So, yeah, that's, um, there's some things in there that we could go into more detail on. I could give you, excuse me, more historical quotes. But hopefully that gives us a pretty good feel for, for these chapters and our future as Yeshua's disciples. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's going uh, to be incredible, mind-blowing. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.